Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. My guest host again this week is my good friend Matthew, prolific poster in the Dark Poutine Facebook groups and dad of Dark Poutine's much-loved, photographed, unofficial mascot, Steve the British Bulldog. It's great to have you with me again, Matthew. It's great to be here again. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to send my condolences to the family of my longtime friend and staunch Dark Poutine supporter, Lauren Sear. He and I were talking about him guest hosting Dark Poutine one day. Too bad that'll never come about. I hope that wherever you are, you're at peace. Fly free, old friend. I'll miss you. This episode is for you, Lauren. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. Part of a well-balanced diet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> July 13th, just after 2 a.m., police responded to reports of some kind of break-in and possibly multiple deaths at the home of the Raffae family at 4610-144 Place Southeast in the affluent Somerset neighborhood in Bellevue, Washington, a suburb just east of Seattle. A bloody crime scene awaited the first responders. This is Dark Poutine episode 167, Did They Get It Right? The Raffae Family Murders. The 911 call audio that follows was placed by Glenn Sebastian Burns, 18, of West Vancouver, B.C., at almost exactly 2 a.m. on July 13, 1994. Uh, there's, uh, I need uh, an ambulance. Okay, go ahead and go outside. Please, 
The property was tough to find, as it is back of a winding system of cul-de-sacs, side streets, and large, darkened homes set back off the road, obscured by intricate and expensive landscaping. The first cop on the scene was Officer Gary Hiromada, arriving five minutes after the 911 call. He'd slowly driven by the residence at first, unable to see the addresses in the darkness, but stopped when two young men he would later describe as hysterical pounded on the trunk of his car, yelling about the bodies inside the house. Romada lit up the pair with his floodlight. One was the tall, lanky Sebastian Burns, the young man who had placed the 911 call, and his companion was his much shorter friend Atif Ahmad Rafay, also 18, and the eldest of the Rafay children. As soon as they had Romada's attention, the two seemed to calm down, and memorably so to the officer. In the book, perfectly executed by Peter Van Zant and Jenna Jackson, Romada recalled his interactions with Burns and Raffae. Their demeanor nagged at him. He said neither of the young men shed a tear and both went from hysterics to complete calm in seconds. Quote, it was like a light switch, Romada said. When the light switch was on, they were very incoherent. They were yelling and screaming. When the light switch went off, they were quiet, emotionless, and acidic. He continued, they became very calm. They didn't move. It surprised me that they didn't ask me any questions. As other officers arrived, entered the house, and began discovering multiple crime scenes inside, the boys sat there on the curb. They didn't ask if anyone in the house was okay. They didn't ask if an ambulance was on the way. They didn't ask anything. They just sat there calmly. The next-door neighbor later noted that he had heard voices outside his window at around 2 a.m., they didn't sound excited, and when the neighbor looked out, he noted the pair didn't seem worked up at all. In fact, they didn't start yelling until the first cop car arrived with Officer Hiromata at the helm. Other officers gave contradicting accounts of the demeanors of Burns and Raffae, some saying they seemed extremely upset and inconsolable, and others claiming they were disturbingly calm. The first victim discovered was Basma, Atif's 20-year-old sister. She was badly beaten, but barely clinging to life. She was in her bedroom, covered in blood all around her head, face down. There were dents in the wall above where her attacker's weapon had stricken the wall during the assault. Bosma was making a horrible sound described by responding officer Lieutenant Nice as a death rattle. Paramedics bundled the young woman onto a stretcher and rushed her to a nearby trauma hospital where she died five hours later. She had never regained consciousness. Even if Bosma had lived, she'd not have been able to tell police what she'd seen, if anything at all. Bosma was intellectually disabled and nonverbal after a bout with spinal meningitis when she was a child. Upstairs in the master bedroom, Atifrafe's father, Tariq, was in his bed, flat on his back and dressed in blue pajamas. A Pakistani immigrant and devout Muslim, Tariq was according to perfectly executed, quote, a gifted structural engineer and bridge builder, and had recently started a job as a project manager with Alpha Engineering. He was an accomplished man and had his doctorate in engineering. It was Tariq's new job that had facilitated the family's recent move only a couple months before from North Vancouver, B.C. to Washington State. He'd been excited for his new adventure. Tariq had been bludgeoned. The wounds to his head and face were catastrophic, and he was clearly deceased. It was the first blow to his head that had killed Mr. Raffae. He had to have been asleep at the time as there were no defensive wounds on his hands or arms. 
His killer, however, had kept striking at Tariq multiple times. Overkill. All four walls and the ceiling had been splattered in Tariq's blood and brain matter. Blood had soaked his pillows and bedsheets. Atif's mother, Sultana, 56, was found in the basement. Sultana had earned a master's degree in nutrition from Colorado State University, but had later decided to become a stay-at-home mom to focus on her family. It appeared that she'd been unpacking boxes from the family's recent move when she'd been viciously attacked, most likely taken by surprise. Sultana was laying on her side in a large pool of her blood that soaked her nearby prayer rug. She'd been bashed twice in almost the same spot on the back of her head with a heavy blunt weapon. Following blood droplets from one room to the other, investigators determined that Sultana had been the first who had been beaten, then Tariq, and finally Basma. There were no signs of forced entry, and the fact that each victim seemed to be unaware of any strangers in the home struck investigators as odd. Police quickly turned their attention to Atif and Sebastian as the focus of their investigation into the murders. They were the ones who'd reported it, after all. Sebastian and Atif spent all night talking with the police, first at the crime scene and then later at the Bellevue Police Department. The pair had matching stories. Atif, who'd been home from Cornell University, had been visiting his friend Sebastian in West Vancouver only days before, and the pair had made their way to Bellevue so Sebastian could see the Raffae family's new home. They'd been friends since their time in high school together in West Vancouver in the years leading up to the murders. They had been at the Raffae's for five days before the day of the murders. At around 8.30 on the evening of the murders, Atif and Sebastian left the Raffae residence for a night on the town, with Atif driving the Raffae family's brown Honda Accord. The first place they went was the Keg Restaurant, about a 10-minute drive without traffic on I-90 on the corner of the 405. They arrived at around 8.45. They had a meal there, a small one, salad, and some wine. The keg in Factoria is a busy one, but the pair were later remembered by a waiter who recalled Sebastian asking for the time at some point in their visit. They ate, drank, and chatted until about 9.25, then left for the theater complex just across the street. Atif and Sebastian then said they attended the 9.40 showing of the Disney animated film, The Lion King, and they said they'd stayed for the entire movie, which ended at 11.20. They were remembered there, too, from before the film started. From the province newspaper on August 28, 1994, quote, Police say Sebastian chatted to the popcorn vendor and asked him whether he liked the logo of the world's toughest milkman on his T-shirt. The vendor told police he was getting impatient with Sebastian's patter and remembered him because of the shirt. According to court documents, theater employees recalled Sebastian as one of the patrons who had reported a curtain malfunction shortly after the movie began. No one recalled seeing Burns or Raffae at the theater after about 10 p.m. When the film let out, Sebastian and Atif claimed they drove into Seattle, landing at a popular all-night food spot called Steve's Broiler at 4th and Virginia, about 20 minutes west off the I-90. The waitress there said she remembered the pair as well. From the province newspaper on August 28, 1994, quote, a waitress told the province the two looked immaculate, joked a lot, and flirted as she served them ice cream and pie. They were joking and flirting, she said. I told the guy his shirt looked really cool. It had a logo of a psychotic milkman on it. They were asking where they could go dance or have a couple of beers. 
I told them they were getting late, and if they wanted to make the last call to go to the Weathered Wall, an alternative music nightclub across the street. Asked why she remembered them so well, the waitress said she was astounded by their $6 tip for an $8 meal. It was a lot for two young guys, she said. It was almost a 100% tip. Atif and Sebastian then went to the Weathered Wall at 1921 Fifth Avenue under the monorail, but they were unable to get in. It was too close to closing time. They begged to be let in, but were refused by the man working the door. They returned to Steve's broiler, used the restroom, got into the Rafay's Accord and drove back to Bellevue, arriving just before 2 a.m. That's when, they said, they discovered the bodies of Sultana and then Tariq. Atif said he had heard his sister moaning in her room, but was afraid to enter. Police asked Atif whether he'd noticed anything missing from the home. He told them that several items were gone, including his personal stereo and portable compact disc player, and that the family's VCR appeared to be missing. Sebastian noted that legal boxes full of paper had been gone through in the room he'd been staying in. Police photos show that the boxes had not been rummaged through at all, but merely tipped over. During their time at the police station, Sebastian and Atif provided police with their clothing, were examined for evidence of blood spatter, and for gunshot residue. The pair submitted to an alternative light source test that is able to detect any traces of blood, but no evidence of blood was found on them. They were clean. The exact causes of death in the murders were not yet known. A Washington State crime lab would later determine that an aluminum baseball bat had been used as the murder weapon. The bat has never been found. As Sebastian and Atif were being questioned, and in the days after, police canvassed the Rafay's neighbors to determine if anyone had seen or heard anything at all. The last time anyone other than Atif and Sebastian had seen any of the Rafay's was around 8 p.m., when a neighbor noticed Tariq and Basma getting into one of the family vehicles and driving off. It's unknown where they were off to, and they were not seen returning. Another neighbor had been in and out of her house numerous times between 7 and 9, but didn't see anything out of the ordinary on the Rafay property. One of the neighbors, Mark Seidel, mentioned that he recalled hearing hollow hammering sounds coming from the Rafay home sometime between 9.45 and 10.15. He surmised that it might be someone hammering nails to hang pictures. As the Rafays had moved in only recently, this does not seem illogical. Mark didn't hear anything after that until around 2 a.m. when the commotion started. If Seidel's memory of the time is accurate, Atif and Sebastian should have been at the movies when Mark had overheard the banging next door. At 8.30 a.m. on July 13th, Officer McBride took Atif and Sebastian to buy clothes and eat breakfast. After their meal, Officer McBride took Sebastian and Atif to a local dive, the now-demolished Bellevue Motel. The pair rested at the motel until 2 p.m. when they were picked up by Detective Robert Thompson. Sebastian and Atif accompanied him to the Bellevue Police Department for further questioning, fingerprinting, and photographing, and they were taken back to the motel at around 6 p.m. Bored that evening, Sebastian and Atif rented a VCR and movies at a local blockbuster. Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon and Chevy Chase's spy comedy Fletch. In the early afternoon of July 14th, Sebastian and Atif went to a Barnes & Noble's bookstore. Detectives Gomez and Thompson intercepted the pair there at the bookstore and requested separate third statements from each of them. 
Between 3 and 6 p.m., Atif provided a three-hour taped interview and Sebastian gave a one-and-a-half-hour taped interview to the Bellevue investigators. For all of their interviews, Sebastian and Atif neither asked for nor had any legal representation present. The pair had to have been concerned about the attention that police were paying to them. Whether they'd done anything or not, Bellevue investigators were applying a lot of pressure. After a suggestion from Sebastian's folks, they reached out to the Canadian Consulate for help. On the morning of July 15, 1994, Canadian Consulate employee Cindy Taylor Blakey obtained permission from the Bellevue Police Department to return Sebastian and Atif to Sebastian's parents in Vancouver, B.C. She met them at the local Greyhound bus station to see them off. Detective Thompson was made aware at 10 a.m. that a funeral for Atif Rafay's family was planned that same day at the Northgate Mosque they had attended. Atif was not made aware that it was happening as he and Sebastian were making arrangements and returning to Vancouver at the time. According to DignityMemorial.com, a quick burial is the norm for deceased members of the Islamic faith. Quote, Islamic families and communities are generally very close and this means that they may attend the funeral to show their support, pay their respects and grieve the loss of a loved one. In keeping with Islamic traditions, the funeral and burial happen as soon as possible in order to free the soul from the body. The departed are washed by adult members of the family, men by men and women by women. Then they are ceremonially wrapped in white cloth and buried within three days of the time of death. It's a specific process that includes a number of washings and a number of steps dictating which part of the body is washed in what order. Because of both the wrap and the desire to bury the dead as soon as possible, Muslim funerals generally don't have a viewing, though this may be done by certain members of the community directly after the body is wrapped. That evening, Sebastian and Atif were at the Burns residence, having arrived in Vancouver at around 5 p.m., they watched the evening news as it played in the living room. The murders were the lead story on the Seattle news. And it was then that Atif discovered that his family's funeral had been planned and took place without his involvement. Atif was distraught and phoned Detective Thompson, leaving him a message inquiring why he had not been informed. Detective Thompson did not return his call. We'll take a break right here. And we're back. The police told the press that the young men had, quote, fled the country to Canada to avoid prosecution. The press began painting the pair as guilty fugitives from justice based on that information. Many of the news reports after that, fueled by information given to the media by police, quote, demonized Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns. Long before their day in court, they were convicted in the court of public opinion. It was true, though, that as Sebastian and Atif were now in another country, albeit only two and a half hours away by car, the investigation would become much more difficult for the Bellevue police, especially if they determined that they were indeed involved in the crime. Even though the U.S. and Canada are great friends, extradition from Canada to a state with the death penalty, like Washington, can be extremely problematic. The next day, investigators from the Bellevue police traveled to Vancouver. 
The police had been assigned, quote, the task of contacting school officials, friends of Burns and Raffae, teachers, or anybody that might have some insight into these two individuals, end quote. According to court documents, the police were, quote, unsuccessful in arranging any further contact with Burns or Raffae. Eventually, Bellevue Police asked the RCMP for assistance in obtaining financial information about Burns and Raffae and DNA samples. After staying several weeks with Burns' parents, Sebastian and Atif moved into a North Vancouver house with their friends Jimmy Miyoshi and Robin Puga. Police were surveilling the pair almost all of the time. Investigators were running into what the province newspaper called a, quote, wall of silence as friends of Atif and Sebastian began to refuse cooperation with them. Atif and Sebastian were no longer cooperating either, saying that they'd already told police all they knew. The cops saw it differently. Veteran investigator Lieutenant Jack McDonald involved in the case told the province, quote, What I have seen in my 27 years as a cop is that victims of crime like to help participate in the investigation. They are forthcoming to help us clarify things. They want, as badly as us, a solution to the crime, end quote. The police continued analyzing evidence from the crime scenes inside the Raffae residence. Some of it was problematic and could have been taken subjectively and did not actually tie Sebastian and Atif to the crime. Hair found in a shower drain was later matched a DNA sample indicating the donor was Sebastian Burns. Police presumed that Sebastian had deposited the hair there when cleaning up after the commission of the crime. There had been no blood on either of them. It would also be reasonable that, as he had been in the house for five days at some point, he'd have taken a shower in that bathroom. There was also a pubic hair found on the Raffae's bed that did not match anyone in the Raffae family, nor Atif or Sebastian Burns. Police surmised it was unrelated to the crime, discounting it, believing that it had been brought into the house some other way, perhaps on the Raffae's clothing. But whose was it? Looking for a motive... Investigation into the Raffae family's finances showed that Atif Raffae stood to gain around half a million dollars from the estate after the deaths of the rest of his family, including the $300,000 home that the family had just purchased. An anonymous tip to the Bellevue police days after the murder indicated that Atif and Sebastian were lovers and that Tariq, a devout Muslim, had found out and was enraged. Police had already questioned Atif and Sebastian about just that on July 14th. A 2003 Vancouver Sun article highlighted an interaction between a police investigator and Atif Raffae during an interview that day. Quote, You roll your eyes every time the subject matter is brought up, the officer said. I don't have anything against gay people at all, Raffae said. One of my friends at Cornell is gay, but it's just so off the wall, you know what I mean? I also wonder, what the hell does that have to do with anything, you know? The fact that both Sebastian and Atif were students of Albert Camus, an existentialist, and German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, in particular, his Ubermensch theory, became of real interest to police and later prosecutors. According to Study.com, the Ubermensch is the person who is able to break from the illusion. Basically, the Ubermensch recognizes that society's definition of morality is biased and socially constructed, so, does this mean the Ubermensch is amoral or has no moral code? Absolutely not. Rather than accept the morality dictated by institutions like the Church, the Ubermensch creates his own morality based on his own experiences, which is grounded in his secular physical world as opposed to some non-earthly afterlife. 
It is this superpower, the ability to see past the illusion, which creates an ubermensch and makes this person a superior being. Investigators believe that both Sebastian and Atif saw themselves in that light and were therefore above man's laws and were making their own. Many of the people who knew the pair say they were nothing like that. They were merely well-read. Months after the murders, a memorial service was held in B.C. for the Raffae family. Atif and Sebastian attended, holding up their hands to prevent cameras to get decent shots of their faces as they walked into the building. After the service, Atif was asked by a reporter, Why don't you talk to police? He smirked as he ran toward a waiting car, hopping into the back seat with Sebastian and another woman, and they laughed and giggled as Atif got into the car and it sped off. This video was played over and over on local and national media, portraying Atif and Sebastian as cold and unfeeling, the type of people who would have committed such brutal murders as that of the entire Raffae family. Police in the U.S. seemed to have tunnel vision and wanted to charge Burns and Raffae with the crime, but needed more evidence. This is when the RCMP became involved, in a big way. The following comes from court documents. In January 1995, Bellevue police detectives met with RCMP officers in Vancouver, and the RCMP agreed to assist. The RCMP also opened their own investigation into whether Atif and Sebastian had been involved in a conspiracy to commit murder while in Canada. The RCMP obtained judicial authority to place wiretaps and audio intercept devices in Atif and Sebastian's home and in their car, and eventually obtained more than 4,000 hours of recordings. In April 1995, the RCMP began an undercover operation similar to others it had used in Canadian cases over the years. Dubbed Project Estate, undercover officers posed as leaders of a successful criminal organization. Sergeant Al Hazlitt and Corporal Gary Shinkaruk were, were the primary undercover operators, with Hazlitt acting as Mr. Big, the apparent head of the fictitious organization, and Shinkaruk as his subordinate. The operation eventually planned and carried out 12 scenarios in an effort to secure confessions. In the first scenario on April 11, 1995, for the initial meeting, Shinkaruk staged an encounter with Burns outside a hair salon after Burns had a haircut. Shinkaruk told Burns that he had locked his keys in his car and asked for a ride back to his hotel. When Burns mentioned he needed $200,000 for a movie he was planning, Shinkaruk offered to introduce him to Al, a possible investor. Shinkaruk accompanied Burns to a strip club and introduced himself to Hazlitt. Burns expressed interest in Hazlitt's offer to earn extra money. In the second scenario, two days later, Hazlitt contacted Burns and directed him to drive with Shinkaruk to Whistler, where the two met with Hazlitt. When Hazlitt asked Burns to drive a stolen car back to Vancouver, Burns appeared pale and expressed concern about the plan. Burns eventually drove what he believed to be a stolen car back to Vancouver, where Hazlitt paid him $200. Burns repeatedly expressed his dissatisfaction with the amount he had earned and his lack of participation in the planning of the operation. Burns indicated that he was willing to participate in more lucrative future operations, including selling drugs and acting as a hitman. In the third operation, on April 20th and 21st, 1995, Shinkaruk left a telephone message for Burns. Burns returned the call and indicated his willingness to meet with Shinkaruk in a few days. 
On May 6, 1995, at the Four Seasons Hotel, an undercover officer dressed as a biker displayed two guns and delivered a large amount of cash to Shinkaruk. Burns watched and then helped Shinkaruk count the money. Shinkaruk told Burns that he had fucking toasted a guy, but Hazlitt had made sure the witness was unavailable for trial. During the meeting, Burns disclosed that he and a friend were suspects in the Bellevue murders. Burns claimed that he now had enough money to make his movie, but remained interested in certain future opportunities, including money laundering and drug sales. He also said he would not have, quote, any dilemma about killing someone for the organization and that, quote, anything goes. Burns repeatedly resisted Hazlitt's questions about committing the murders, but also indicated his desire to learn more about what the Bellevue police knew and to have evidence destroyed. In the fifth scenario, over May 29th and 30th, 1995, Shinkaruk became concerned that a recent newspaper article may have compromised the operation. He called Burns. Burns said that he was glad to hear from Shinkaruk and available to meet with him. Shinkaruk said he would call the next day and set up a meeting. After the call, the electronic intercept recorded Burns saying, I'm a happy man. When Shinkaruk called the next day, he told Burns that Hazlitt was busy and nothing would be scheduled that day. Burns expressed disappointment. In the sixth scenario, on June 13th, Shinkaruk called Burns and asked if he was interested in making some money. Shinkaruk invited Burns to bring a trusted friend and meet him at the Royal Scott Hotel in Victoria. Burns asked Miyoshi to join him. The two met with Hazlitt and Shinkaruk in Victoria on June 15, 1995. For two days, Burns and Miyoshi assisted Shinkaruk with money laundering by making cash deposits totaling about $100,000 into various bank automated teller machines. Hazlitt provided Burns and Miyoshi with spending money and $2,000 at the end of the second day. During the course of the encounter, Burns twice asked Hazlitt what he had learned about the Bellevue investigation. Hazlitt said that he had someone investigating the matter and would inform Burns what he had learned. Hazlitt also discussed computer skills with Burns and Miyoshi, suggesting future employment possibilities. After Hazlitt and Shinkaruk left, Burns told Miyoshi that, quote, This has been the coolest thing ever. I couldn't ask for any more. End quote. In the seventh scenario, on June 20th, 1995, after calling Burns and telling him they might visit, Hazlitt and Shinkaruk appeared at Burns and Rafay's house. Hazlitt discussed Burns' computer knowledge and system and told Burns he would soon be hearing from a friend with information about the Bellevue police investigation. Burns warned Hazlitt that the house was bugged. In the eighth scenario in late June, Burns and Miyoshi returned to Victoria for a second round of money laundering. Hazlitt arranged to speak alone with Burns and told him that the Bellevue police had him, quote, in a pretty big fucking way. Hazlitt mentioned that the police had evidence of Burns' DNA and his hair found in the shower mixed with the victim's blood and Burns' fingerprints on a box. Hazlitt said he needed more details in order to help Burns. Burns repeatedly deflected Hazlitt's attempts to elicit concrete details about the murders but provided some veiled responses suggesting his participation and a financial motive. Burns also expressed concern that Hazlitt was an undercover officer. Hazlitt discussed computers again with Burns, but did not pay Burns or Miyoshi for their assistance. In the ninth scenario, on July 10, 1995, to avoid appearing to focus on Burns, Hazlitt and Shinkaruk arranged a money laundering operation involving only Miyoshi. 
Miyoshi did not reveal any details about the murders. In the tenth scenario, July 18, 1995, Burns agreed to meet with Hazlitt in Shinkaruk at First Point Hotel in Victoria. At the hotel, Hazlitt discussed the organization's computer needs with Burns. Hazlitt then showed him a fake Bellevue Police Department memorandum that indicated the police would soon call a press conference and that charges would soon be filed against Burns and Raffae once the culturing of Burns' DNA was completed. Hazlitt told Burns that things would be happening quickly and that the police were coming to lock your ass up. After studying the report and discussing with Hazlitt the specific items of evidence that it listed, Burns insisted that the items all had potentially innocent explanations. Burns eventually acknowledged, however, that he wanted Hazlitt's help. Hazlitt told Burns that he could arrange for his associate to destroy the evidence, but that he would not do so until Burns told him the complete details of the murders. Hazlitt explained that the associate could not destroy all of the evidence unless he knew the details of the crime. Burns eventually told Hazlitt specific details about his and Raffae's participation in the murders. A hidden camera recorded Burns' confession. According to further court documents, Sebastian related that he used a bat and that he later disposed of the bat in his clothing in various dumpsters and that Dr. Orfei and Bosma were sleeping at the time of the attacks. When asked about planning the crime, Sebastian said that they really did not plan them. In contrast, Sebastian gave a detailed explanation of what he and Atif did that night. The narrative did not include the murders until Hazlitt asked him directly when they occurred and Sebastian said, during the movie, they had snuck out of the movie, driven to the Raffae home, committed the murders, cleaned up, and returned before the film let out. Allowing for the duration of the drive back and forth, the timeline worked out giving Burns and Raffae plenty of opportunity to commit the crime and return to the cinema. Sebastian said Atif was in the home but did not help, and he first killed Mrs. Raffae, then Dr. Raffae, then Bosma. At one point, he said he wore underwear when he committed the crimes, and at another point, Sebastian said the killer was naked. He could not remember where they obtained the bat. Raffae arrived, and Hazlitt spoke at length with him in Burns' presence. Hazlitt discussed the details of the Bellevue memo with Raffae and repeatedly emphasized the importance of trust. Raffae reassured him that Burns was his best friend and that he would never betray him. Raffae then provided details about his participation in the murders. He explained that he had watched Burns kill his mother and had removed the family VCR, but had not otherwise participated in the killings. When asked why they had killed his parents, Raffae responded that it was to, quote, become richer and more prosperous and more successful. Burns also added additional details about the killing of Bosma, which took a little more bat work than he had expected. The RCMP also videotaped Raffae's confessions. On July 26, 1995, in the final scenario, Burns and Miyoshi met with Hazlitt at the Landis Hotel in Vancouver. At Burns' urging, Miyoshi told Hazlitt that he knew about the plan to kill Raffae's parents about a month in advance. He explained that he did not go to Bellevue with the defendants because he was too busy at work. On July 31st, 1995, Burns and Raffae were charged in King County with three counts of aggravated first-degree murder. On the same day, the RCMP arrested them and charged them as fugitives. King County requested the extradition of Burns and Raffae and refused to waive potential of the death penalty. This created a protracted litigation. After nearly six years, the Canadian Supreme Court 
ruled on February 15, 2001, that the defendants could not be extradited without a waiver of the death penalty. King County then provided the required assurances. They would not seek the death penalty in the Raffae murders. Burns and Raffae were transported to Washington and arraigned on April 6, 2001. In the beginning, Jimmy Miyoshi stuck by his friends telling police that Sebastian and Atif were innocent. He cratered under the intense pressure applied by the police and the possibility of being sentenced to life in prison was a chance he was not willing to take. Jimmy agreed to cooperate and told police that he had overheard Atif and Sebastian talking about killing the Raffae family. Miyoshi participated in a videotaped deposition that was played later at trial. The trial was supposed to begin earlier, but an odd thing happened. In 2002, it was postponed after guards at the jail reported seeing Sebastian having intercourse with his female attorney during a meeting in a private room. Jury selection began on October 10, 2003 and concluded on November 13, 2003. Opening statements began on November 24. The prosecution presented their evidence, which, other than the Mr. Big Confessions and Jimmy Miyoshi's testimony, were mostly circumstantial. No physical evidence truly tied Atif or Sebastian to the murders. Prosecutors also focused on the pair's demeanor at the crime scene and afterward as indicative of their guilt. They painted Atif and Sebastian as criminal masterminds, citing their high intelligence. From writer Sean Bloor's Vancouver Magazine article on the case, by their intellect and their achievements, Burns and Raffae ranked among the elite. Loneliness is ever the burden of the few. Miyoshi appears to have been their only friend. Not even women came between them. Girls, said Burns, interfered with their unique relationship. Arrogance is another prerogative of the superior few. Burns and Raffae certainly had more than their share of contempt for the mediocre rich kids who were their peers and the middle-aged time servers who were their teachers. In his high school yearbook, Raffae described his feelings in flowery prose. Hearing the cries of the plebes below, Atif descended through the clouds, driven by a compassionate impulse, realizing all too late that their pleas are a cunning trap. The pawns of West Van defeated Yatif Rafay for the last time. Casting aside the fellow illusions of his peers, he gazed bemusedly at the petty struggles of those around him and began to laugh and would continue to laugh for three years. When will his laughter cease? End quote. Burns' yearbook epistle is equally instructive, less flowery, more brutal. Having no tolerance for the labyrinth facades of the weak, wrote Burns, Sebastian seized every weeping opportunity with a clenched fist and without regard for potential victims exploited them in a way that would yield laughter. In what seemed a coincidence far too creepy to ignore, the prosecution pointed out that Sebastian had starred in his school play Rope, which was modified to be about two kids who committed the perfect murder and used a baseball bat as a weapon. The defense claimed that Sebastian and Atif were merely playing roles to acquire the funds they needed to film their movie, and that they were afraid of the mobsters. Sebastian said he had studied newspaper articles so he would know the details of the murders. That's how he knew the murder weapon was a baseball bat, that the killer had showered before leaving the crime scene, and more. Closing statements in the trial concluded on May 20, 2004. The jury returned its verdict six days later, finding the defendants guilty as charged. At sentencing on October 24, 2004, Sebastian Burns spoke up. 
a lot. He spoke and spoke and spoke. He did himself no favors going on and on for almost two hours about the injustices he and his friend Atif had suffered at the hands of the RCMP, the Bellevue police, and the prosecutors. We could have played you some of the audio of that rambling statement, but thought it best to spare you. Instead, we're providing you a link to the first 15 minutes of Sebastian's diatribe that someone uploaded to YouTube. Watch at your peril. Atif spoke as well that day, but also consists to his character, was more concise and spoke about his love for his family. The court imposed three terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole on each defendant, but was justice served. There were other suspects, according to the website rafayburnsappeal.com, and many of the details in these other possible scenarios were kept from the jury. From the RCMP, quote, a confidential RCMP informant contacted Constable Jelenas of the RCMP. The confidential RCMP informant told Constable Jelenas a man, name withheld, told him that he had been offered a $20,000 contract to kill an East Indian family that had previously lived in Vancouver, Canada, and had moved to Bellevue, Washington. Constable Jelena concluded that the information was related to the murder of the Rafays. The informant also told Jelena that he heard this information two days before the murders were committed. From the FBI, about five days after the homicides, the Bellevue Police Department received a call from the FBI advising that one of their informants was coming to provide information about the murder of the Raffae family. The FBI informant, name withheld, told Detective Gomez of the Bellevue Police that a militant Islamic faction said that Dr. Tariq Rafay should die because of his beliefs and teachings about the Koran. The teachings that are being referred to are that Tariq had calculated and written that True East was actually a few degrees off what was taught by the Islamic faith. Muslims pray facing East and have many of their sacred buildings facing East. Thus, these calculations by Dr. Rafay could have potentially upset fundamentalists and extremists within the religion. The quote continues, The FBI informant also said that several days after the homicides, a member of this militant Islamic faction came to his house and was worried that the FBI informant had seen a baseball bat that he and some other men were carrying around in his car. Because of this, the FBI informant believed the murder weapon was a baseball bat, which in fact it was. With this information, the Bellevue investigators learned that the FBI informant knew the identity of the murder weapon before this information was made public. The FBI informant provided names, addresses, and phone numbers to the police so they could follow up. Instead of following up, prosecutors in this case explained that Bellevue investigators thought this FBI informant was, quote, crazy. That's verbatim from Report of Proceedings from 11-1903 on page 12. Because of this, they did not follow up on any of the leads or information he gave them from the Seattle Police Intelligence Division. This division called the Bellevue Police Department and told them they had information on Fukura, a radical militant organization that may have been involved in these homicides. And this is how the U.S. State Department describes Fukra, a.k.a. Jamaat al-Fukra, Islamic sect that seeks to purify Islam through violence, led by Pakistani cleric Sheikh Mubarak Ali Jilani, who established the organization in the early 1980s. Jilani now resides in Pakistan, but most cells are located in North America and the Caribbean. 
members have purchased isolated rural compounds in North America to live communally, practice their faith, and insulate themselves from Western culture. These three tips relate to one another. The Fukra is known to hire contract killings for religious reasons and to not take responsibility. An individual in the Vancouver area was offered a murder contract on the Raffae family. An unnamed militant faction in Seattle wanted Dr. Raffae dead. And members of this unnamed militant faction were worried that an informant saw a baseball bat in their car. Common sense tells us that these tips point to the real killers. Interestingly, there's more from RaffaeBurnsAppeal.com. Quote, in January of 2003, Rizat Ali Khan, another prominent Muslim who had been a close friend of Atif Rafay's father, was murdered outside his home in Vancouver, B.C. Together, Dr. Tariq Rafay and Rizat Ali Khan founded the Canadian-Pakistan Fellowship Organization, and both men also served as president of this organization. After his death, Mr. Khan was described as, quote, a champion of multiculturalism and a bridge builder between ethnic communities. His murder is unsolved. Mr. Khan was one of Atif Rafay's few visitors while he was awaiting trial for these murders in a pretrial facility near Vancouver, B.C. Burns and Rafay are still in jail. According to a 2016 article on cbc.ca, three innocence projects now believe that Burns and Rafay are innocent. The article goes on to say, quote, Three innocence projects have now taken up the case of West Vancouver men Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns, who in 2004 were convicted of the 1994 slayings of Rafay's parents and sister in Bellevue, Washington, in their Bellevue, Washington home. Former Vancouver teacher and writer Ken Klonsky is director of Innocence International, founded by the Reuben, by the late Reuben Hurricane Carter in 2004. He decided to take on the case after seeing a film about the case made by Burns' sister. Since the trial, Burns and Raffae have stuck to their innocence and repeatedly attempted to get back into court to get their conviction overturned. Atif Raffae has spent time writing and helping other prisoners to get their high school diplomas. Sebastian Burns has not done so well. He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement for various infractions, has developed an eating disorder, as well as other mental health issues. So let's talk a little bit about this case, Matthew. Um, so the 911 call, let's start with that first. Mm -hmm. uh, let's have a listen to it again. thoughts of listening to that Matthew the first thing he said was we need an ambulance yeah and I think you know the the, the court was focusing on the fact that they said it was some sort of break-in yeah but you know I read that as somebody freaking out not knowing what to say 
Yeah. I don't know. Like I've listened to the call so many times Mm -hmm. in a way it sounds kind of scripted to me. Do you think so? Yeah. Well, it kind of did to me as well, but I'm like, I have no idea what I would say right. on a 911 exactly. call or how exactly. I would do it. You know, I'm the type of, I laugh at funerals because it's, it's my coping mechanism. Yep. Totally. So yep. like I can never judge people on how they're reacting. No. Yeah. So yeah, the 911 call is one thing and all that is, is just a thing. Um, how he sounded on the call is how he sounded. Yeah. Their demeanor. Some of the initial investigators say that the pair were upset and distraught and others said that they were nonchalant. This is so subjective. You know, like, who do you believe and how much weight should we put into someone's demeanor after discovering bodies at a crime scene? Yeah, I think they should probably stick to facts. Right? Right. Like evidence and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, because all of this stuff is just kind of useless. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. If you really look at it... um, it's not evidence at all. It's not evidence. It's no. perception. Yeah. And as you just said, some people thought they were upset. Some weren't. It's different perceptions from different people. I find the fact that Atif didn't go to his sister Bosma very concerning. He said he could hear her moaning in her room. Was this more evidence of the pair's plan to distance themselves from evidence at the crime scene? Maybe they didn't want to get her blood on them. You know, both mm. of them were completely clean. And if they'd cleaned themselves up earlier, perhaps that's why they avoided contact with any of the victims on uh, finding them. That one really did stick out to me a little it, bit. That one's problematic. Right? Yeah. You know, if my if I heard my brother moaning in another room, yeah. after I found other people in the house dead, I'd be like running in there. Right. You know what I mean? Like Atif told the police that, oh, come on, I, I couldn't even apply a Band-Aid. Um, that was kind of his excuse for not going in there. But if it's my sister, I'm in there. Yeah. And Rachel, what's wrong? Like, what's going on with you? Yeah. Like, uh, I'm trying to help in some way. I'd probably be covered in blood, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Alibis and timelines. Were Sebastian and Atif careful to be noticed? Did they go out of their way? Do you think they went out of their way to be noticed? Like, look at my psychotic milkman t-shirt. You know, I was laughing because... Uh, you know me, mm-hmm. and I generally go out of my way to be noticed. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and I have I have been in places with Matthew where, yes, he and goes I, out of his way to be noticed there. And well, it's, you know, it's just, I'm, the, I'm just, you know, I'm open. And I'm like, hey, look at, look at the t-shirt, right? Right. And maybe the guy was just like that, right? Yeah. And, you know, they were flirting with the waitress. You know, I've given a hundred percent tip for cute so waiter, I, yeah. you know? Yep. So, so I, I don't find any of that sort of strange. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Um, uh, who steals a disc man and a VCR? Like even in 1994, those things weren't worth very much. Like the disc man was like 10 years old and also the boxes were concerned. Like they're just tipped over. They weren't really rummaged through. Like it didn't look like anybody had really been through the house. So, was this Sebastian and Atif um, doing things to cover things up, or was it the actual perpetrators of the crime maybe trying to make it look like a robbery? Yeah, and to me, this is you know where where is their doubt, right? So it could have been them. It could have been fundamentalists trying to make it look like a robbery. Speaking to fundamentalists, like what do you think of those other suspects? Do you what do you think of like the FBI informant who claimed that? 
he he's, he had the bat, saw the bat, and those kind of things. And then the Muslim fundamentalist group that apparently had it out for Tariq. I think there's actually enough there for reasonable doubt that mm-hmm. whether or not these guys did it. And we'll talk about Mr. Big in a second, I'm sure. But, you yeah. know, for me, that Mr. Big should have been completely not allowed into the courtroom. So you don't think that Mr. Big should be a legal investigative technique in Canada at Absolutely all? not. And so why not? What, what, what are your problems with it? If it's illegal in the United States for police to do, how fucked up does it have to be? Right? <laughs> like, like, it's, you know, imagine this, Mike. You are a kid. Mm-hmm. Everyone, the media thinks you're a murderer. You've lost friends. You've lost family members. You can't get a job. Right. And then over months, somebody pays attention to you. Somebody starts giving you money. Mm-hmm. And it, you realize that you're not going to get any further unless you say you did it. It's it's total entrapment. And I, I actually think the RSMP is setting themselves up for a massive problem in the future. Someday the courts will go, okay, all the Mr. Big evidence, all those cases have to be retried because there's going to be massive screw-ups. They're, they're probably, you're right. Yeah. You're probably correct. And uh, our friend Alan R. Warren wrote a book about problems with Mr. Big called Confessions of Murder, Exposing the False Confessions Created from Mr. Big Stings. Um, so you can pick that up on Amazon if you want. It's, it's just 105 pages. It's a really short read, but... Uh, Alan uh, actually talks about this specific case in that book. Um, I've already, I've also had some problems about uh, with Atif not, oh, much has been made about Atif not attending the funeral. And as he had been raised Muslim, Muslim he'd have known of the, the custom of quick burial. So people have pointed to this as evidence of his involvement in the crime. So what, what are your thoughts on that as well? I was thinking that maybe he thought, so he's like gone from the United States to Canada. Maybe he thought bodies are held for evidence or something Mm -hmm. and just didn't know. And, you know, his father wrote that book, you know, about what real East is. So maybe it wasn't like such a part of his understanding of what was going to happen. Right. Right. Because he's a a new generation as well. So I think with all of that stuff happening so quickly, he probably didn't even think that they're going to do that. So quickly. Yeah. And the prosecutor called that complete bullshit. But Sebastian's parents actually mentioned in a few documentaries that I've seen how upset Atif was that the funeral had gone ahead without him Mm. on the day that they were leaving. Like, I mean, they could have attended and then left kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it was, it's pretty disturbing. Um, Here's the big question. Do you think they did it or are they completely innocent and just a couple of dummies who are coerced into a confession by the police. I would have, with everything that I saw, I, I would say there's reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they did or they didn't. Right. But, but I think with the way that the police in, in the United States handled the media, making it look like they fleed, yeah. to create them as these sort of people that are fleeing and Mr. Big, I think they didn't get a fair, fair trial. So yeah. I, I don't know, but they shouldn't be in jail because I don't think it was proven. No. And I, I kind of feel the same way. I don't know whether or not they actually did it, but I agree that the way that the evidence was gathered and the evidence that was presented at trial was not fair. Yeah. 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 Um, and have you ever watched the TV show The Sinner on Netflix? No. So it's Jessica Biel is actually a, an executive producer in it, and she was in the first season. But season three, I just watched and I watched it as I knew I was going to cover this case. 
But interestingly, the characters who are murderers in that show are based on, loosely based on, Burns and Raffae. And their ideas of the Ubermensch and, and how lawlessness, the man creates his own law, the Superman creates his own law. It's quite, quite fascinating. And if you look at the guys who are playing the characters, one guy is a little darker and shorter mm. and the other guy is taller. It's quite, it's quite interesting. They, they even chose actors who look sort of like interesting. Burns and Raffae. Yeah. So. If you want to have a look at that one, it's, I think it's streaming on Netflix right now. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 167, Did They Get It Right? The Raffae Family Murders. Now on to voicemails. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. You might. How's it going? Dark Boutinery fans and Mike. Uh, my name is Bryce. I'm a local listener from Surrey. I just wanted to hit up the line and say thank you for providing me with the only podcast I actually listen to. Um, I can't tell my wife about this because honestly, I, uh, I complain a lot about her watching true crime murder shows and I kind of have you guys as my guilty little pleasure. So, you know, let's not tell the wife and keep up the good episodes and just want to let you know that uh, I really do appreciate the work you put in. I know it takes a lot to research and put it all together. So you just want to let you know, you do a great job and also hello to who the other co-host is that may be with you. Um, you know, Mike, you are dark poutine and as long as you continue on, we'll continue listening. So again, I just wanted to give you a shout, say thank you very much. And just remember, Instead of a double-double, maybe grab a nice cap. And while you're doing that, go take a shit in your hat. Thanks, boys. Bye. Well, thank you so much, Bryce. And I am certain that I heard a rooster in the background. I I thought I heard that as well. (laughs) So it's Matthew this week, and I actually really appreciate your sentiments there. That means a lot to me. It's great to have a local caller. It is great to have a local caller who isn't somebody who I paid to call us. <laughs> <laughs> because you never know. I might do that. No, I don't actually do that. I wouldn't pay somebody to call. You don't I? have enough money to pay somebody I don't to have call. Enough money. I have barely enough money to eat. <laughs> Send in the donut bucks, please. <laughs> the donut money, Mike, Mike's got to feed him. Anyway, we have one more voicemail this week. Not a lot of people called, but that's okay. So it looks like we got a busy signal as as our next uh, caller. So there you go. That is uh, Dark oh, Poutine's week in a nutshell, as far as <laughs> as far as our phone calls go. That was actually really funny. It's kind of sad. It's funny and sad <laughs> at the same time. Oh no! What happened on Dark Poutine this week? Nobody called. There was a busy signal. <laughs> Why? I don't know. We do not know. Maybe they chickened out or something. and Yeah. Yeah. It happens. All right. I guess it's time to move on to Patreon. Thank goodness. Uh, here we go. This week, we have a few. It looks like about seven. And first up, from Crawley in the United Kingdom, Amanda Vandermeer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound right? <laughs> it sounds good to me. Okay. Crawley, West Sussex. She's yeah, West Sussex. You know, that's where Gatwick Airport is. Gatwick Airport. Wow. Yeah. I've never been I've been to uh Heathrow, but I've never been to Gatwick. Okay. It'll cost you about a hundred quid to get uh, to London from Gatwick Airport. It's very far away. Oh, in the car. Yep. Oh wow. Like Uber? Black cab. Black cab. Oh, there you go. So Gatwick Airport, what does she do? Does she work? Does Amanda work at Gatwick or? No, she doesn't work at Gatwick. Uh oh. She is a Netflix tagger. Oh, she tags Netflix movies? She walks, so she works from couch. Yep. Right? And she watches Netflix shows and she tags them with keywords and phrases so people can find what they're looking for more easily. Yeah, I wish they would be more careful with that. Well, I think she is. It's just the rest of them that isn't. Ah, uh, so she's one of many. Yeah. Good job, Amanda. I know she's got our back. And one day <laughs> she'll have dark poutine as a tag there. Who knows? Just tag everything dark poutine. So it <laughs> comes up all the time. Yeah, that would be kind of amazing. Next up, from Weyburn, Saskatchewan, we have Sour Skittles 88. Sour Skittles 88 mm. from Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Sour Skittles. And it looks like this person has a real name, Laurel Rainville. Hello, Laurel. But we'll go with Sour Skittles. Why not? So what does Sour Skittles do there in Weyburn, Saskatchewan? She is Canada's official apologist for Justin Bieber. So in, did you, (laughs) no, did you know that in 2016, the United Nations declared Justin Bieber and his music a crime against humanity? Oh, that's, that makes sense. And uh, unfortunately, Bieber fled to the States. Um, Mm -hmm. We were going to ask to extradite him, but we thought, no, we won't bother. He's living in Los Angeles. It's probably punishment enough. But as part of reparations, uh, two things. Yep. One, the Canadian progressive house DJ uh, Dead Mouse has to do a 50-city tour to spread some actual good Canadian music. Right, that, that's good. And number two, um, somebody has to tour the world apologizing. She's currently in North Korea. Okay. Which has a comparatively good human rights record compared to what Canada's done with Bieber. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Sour Skittles. That's fantastic. Um Wow, I didn't know that we were actually officially apologizing for Bieber. Official, I mean, it should happen. It should be happening. Official sanctions. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's some good research there, Matthew. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Stick with me, Mike. <laughs> Next, we have from Ottawa, Ontario, Maylene mm. Debien. Maylene Debien. And what does Maylene do there in Ottawa? She works for CSIS. Oh, which wow. Which is the Canadian uh, Secret Intelligence Service. Yes. Our, uh, it's Canada's spy agency. It's our answer to the CIA. And she, her special skill is uh, maple syrup waterboarding. Oh, dear. Uh, but she realized most people like it. So <laughs> I'd like to be waterboarded with maple syrup. Waterboard me with maple syrup. You, the problem is you're 400 pounds after it happens. Yeah. <laughs> So just another 20 pounds to go. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. So, well, thank you, Maylene. Uh, that is amazing that you do that. Next up, we have Alicia Rogers from Whistler, British Columbia. Uh, wow. So Whistler, she's from the Whistler. And what does Alicia do there in Whistler? She's a bicycle fisher. 
So she fishes bicycles out of ponds? And rivers. And, oh, wow, I guessed. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of cool. Well, if you think of how many bikes are in the bottom of a body of water. Right. She makes some good cash doing it. I would say so. She fixes them up and sells them on. Like bubbles in, in his uh, his uh, shopping carts in the trailer park, boy. Exactly. And I remember one episode in particular where he was uh, in the water getting uh, shopping carts out and a leech attached to his winner, his wiener. So he said, I think I got a leech onto my bird. <laughs> that show is the poor man's version of Letter Kenny. Yes, it truly is. Uh, next up we have from Bradford in the United Kingdom, Angela Leonard. I thought you were going to say Angela Lansbury. This I'm not really it. excited. Because Matthew that. loves murder, she wrote. I do. And Bed Knobs and Broomsticks is my fave, so... It was the first movie I ever saw. So what does Angela Leonard, not Lansbury, do there in Bradford? She She's unemployed. She hangs out on the lovely white sand beaches of Bradford. Oh, have you been? There's no lovely white sand beaches. Oh, what, what actually is Bradford like? Uh, it's it's uh, sort of a generally a working class northern town. Okay. A big uh, East Asian population. Okay, like here in Surrey. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, yeah, I, I haven't been to Bradford. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go up sometime, though. Well, that would mean you'd have to return to the UK. Yeah, see, I'm still saying up, like I'm there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> up and over the North Pole, and exactly. down, down to Bradford. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, you know, being unemployed isn't a bad thing, uh, as long as you've got money to pay the bills. And she clearly is doing okay, because she's given Dark Poutine some, some money. Lovely. Next she's, up, she's independently wealthy. <laughs> Next up, we have Jennifer Riff, and Jennifer is from Inverness, Florida. Inverness is also a place in the UK, and also a place in uh, in Nova Scotia, which mm. is interesting. So, what does Jennifer do there in Inverness, Florida? She is a city name consultant. A city name consultant. Yes. Oh. So the city in California called Fortuna. Mm-hmm. It used to be called um, Slide. Yes. And she renamed it Fortuna. And then if you go about 20 hours south of Fortuna, there's a city called Ventura. And she named Ventura. She likes the ah sound. Yes. Yeah. So she changes city names. Yeah. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I, see. I, I know a good name for this city. Ah. Oh, see, I can't. That's kind of weird that that happens, but anyway. Thank you, Jennifer. And last but especially not least, we have a new Prime Minister from Independence, Oregon, Christy Snowden. Well, thank you, Christy, for your uh, new Prime Ministership. Wow. Yeah, we really appreciate uh, that donation. Um, What does Christy Snowden do there in Independence, Oregon? She hand-stitches footballs. Hand stitches football. Yep. Now, are you talking English football or American football? Sorry, soccer balls. Oh, soccer balls. Okay, yeah. there you go. See, I have to clarify with Matthew because he lived in the UK for a long time. Yeah, and you caught me there, actually. There you go. Well, it's actually, it's, it's a soccer. It's weird. Anyway. Soccer. It's like, I, like, I still say ice hockey when I'm here. You like rugby. We've been to rugby. Rugby's great. Why do you like rugby so much? Boys in shorts. There you go. <laughs> At least you were honest. I was hoping that's what you were going to no, say. No, that's why I started, but actually it's just a 
It's such a great game. Yeah. It's the only sport I follow. Yeah. Rugby yeah. is is quite fun to watch. And I, I don't watch it for boys in shorts, but, uh, no. but you know, if, if you're into that kind of thing. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a great game though. There you go. Um, next up, let's look at PayPal to see if anybody gave us some donut money this week. And I think we did get some, which is nice. Uh, we have Paula Cassidy Bishop. She says, hi, Mike, this is for Steve. It's yak snack money from my pooches, Jago, Eddie, and Milo. Loved hearing Matthew as well as you, of course. I hope he come becomes a regular co-host. Well, he's a he's twice in a row guest host. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thanks you. Steve thanks Paula, yes. Because Steve needs those chew sticks. He definitely does. No, honestly, you like on on the pack it says like, you know, good for four days. He finishes the things in like fifteen minutes. Oh wow. Yeah. So where is Paula from? It doesn't say on her uh her donation here where she's from, so we have to take a guess. Punta del Est, Uruguay. Oh, wow. Yeah. What? I'm not going to even try and pronounce that place. What does she do at that place in Uruguay? Actually, and this is true, there is beautiful architecture. So Uruguay, like Punta del Est just decided one day to have the really contemporary architecture, and she designs beach houses in, in Uruguay. Oh, my gosh. Punta yeah. del Est. Punta del Est. Oh, I said it correctly. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a place that I would like to go. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. We've both got our COVID shots. Yep, we did. Let's go. We probably should. So, wow. And what does she do there in Punta del Este? I just told oh, you. You just told me. Sorry. It's okay. I clued out. I just went blip. Uh, Irene Brienne sent some donut money for us. Uh, she says to get a beverage and a box of donuts. To answer your question, Mike, I got my iPhone and began listening to podcasts when you oh, when you put when you put on your fourth episode so she's been listening since our fourth episode because I asked that last week I went to listen to the first three episodes right away because I love the fourth so much I love how much research you do how considerate you are about the victims their families and the families of the offenders you guys are the only true crime podcast I listen to keep up the good work I'm glad to have new episodes since I just finished my third run through of your shows. Wow. wow. Matt, it, Matthew, it was so nice to hear from you. My love to Steve and your husband. See you around the barnyard. Yay. Yeah, well, thanks, Irene. There you go. She answered our questions. Thanks, Irene. Next up, we have from Kelowna, British Columbia, Gail Patterson. And what does Gail do in Kelowna? She makes the crinkles and crinkle cut fries. Oh my, how do you do that? I don't know, but they're ribbed for your pleasure. Oh boy, they are so pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, because you can get a little gravy in there and the melted cheese curds stay in there. Ribbed for your pleasure. <laughs> you're a terrible person. No. I'm glad you're doing this. All right. Well, thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You could become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. 
You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give time to give a like to Dark Poutine or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copy can on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv